660 G's of hydro, three quarter grade or better. 120 keys of assorted edibles, jerk fish and plankton cakes. Uh, 60 keys lamp oil, 44 old growth grapevines, uh, 10 assorted fruit trees, uh, zero uh, reloads, no ammo storage in this particular atoll, uh, uh, zero go juice, no, no refining capability. Primitive savages. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 51 and 52, which begin with Chuck realizing he's probably out of a job, and end with Deacon reminiscing about days gone by. We are blessed with such a beautiful explosion at the top of this week's episode, followed up by poor old Chuck... Lifting his mask because an explosion that big would surely cut through the grime of his caked over goggles and the expression on his face of, oh no, that's not right. And then following that up immediately with the driver of the gunboat with his hands out like, dude, what the hell did you just do? Perfect combination. It really is a glorious moment before we moved past it. I would like you to notice the driver sitting behind the gunner. Mm-hmm. He looks to me like Carl Urban. Oh, I see it. Cool. Absolutely. I love not being alone. <laughs> <laughs> like you could have swapped them out and had the same character. I'm trying to zero in on exactly what it is. And I think it's the combination of the eyes and the cheekbones. It's definitely the eyes the eyebrows. The most recent thing that we have seen Carl Urban on is The Boys. Mm -hmm. He spends most of his time scowling. Yeah. So his brows are pinched and down low <laughs> over his eyes, just like this guy. Mm -hmm. I make jokes about, oh, Chuck is probably out of a job. He's totally going to be fired. It's like, no, he's going to get shot and he's going to be floating out in the ocean as a dead body pretty soon because... There is no way the deacon was going to let this slide. This may seem harsh, but I think in this world, it's an appropriate punishment. How many people did he kill unnecessarily mm -hmm. because he wasn't doing his job right? A lot. From the perspective of us existing in the real world, it's all about the human loss. But in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> world where refined resources are scarce, he is party to the destruction of a lot of fuel. Yes, he is. I think that you're right. That is what's going to actually get him fired. <laughs> and as far as the human toll and the resource toll, I'm not sure that he should be the responsible party because like we discussed last week, his circumstances are such that he physically cannot understand what is happening around him. He can't hear anything. He can't see anything. He's just shooting. And his shooting is aimed by the driver of the boat. Mm -hmm. And his ammo is fed by two other people. All he does is pull the triggers. I don't think he should be held responsible. But it's unclear that somebody is, in fact, in charge. So in lieu of somebody being in charge, 
to be responsible, it's Chuck. I don't, or perhaps they all are going to be held responsible. I don't necessarily want to start conducting Chuck's exit interview <laughs> from his employment here with the smokers, but when you are operating a piece of heavy machinery, such as a 50 caliber quad gun blowing holes in the side of an atoll, I feel that there is an element of responsibility for that operator to make sure that their safety equipment is well-maintained, mainly the goggles that he's wearing. He operated the guns, and the guns pumped out a bunch of smoke. That smoke collected on his glasses, covered them in soot. He couldn't see. And one could argue that there was time that he could have stopped firing, cleaned off his goggles, and then resumed firing, that that process would not have delayed the battle in any detrimental way. Okay, so I see where you're coming from, that it was his responsibility to ensure that he could operate the gun safely, and if he could no longer operate safely, to stop operating. Yes. That once he could no longer see out of the goggles, like hearing, is that's never going to be on the table. He's never going to be able to hear anything. But as soon as his goggles became blocked, he should have stopped, cleaned, restarted. Right. That does lay some of the responsibility at his own feet. Ideally, since they seem to have this group of war pups, if you will, (laughs) that he had a kid whose job it was to clean them off or swap them out real quick with clean ones... That he had a person doing that. If they can stop and swab the guns, they can stop and swab the goggles. I agree. I have praised, or perhaps semi-praised, the organization of this navy, I think is a more appropriate term than army, in the past. Well, now I'm criticizing it. The gunboat should have had more organization. There was a couple of options where that organization could have saved the command fuel ship. But ideally, it would have had all of those. It would have had a proper captain who took responsibility for the functions of the ship. The gunner would have had a person to help him clean off his goggles. Mm -hmm. They all should have been on the table. There would have been someone on the boat to say, okay, let's stop firing because our own dudes are in the atoll now and bullets are a finite resource. Uh Uh-huh. Sure, they can melt down and make more, but every bullet fired is effort that is now gone. And the indiscriminate firing is so wasteful. And I know that wasteful might as well be the catchphrase of the smokers. It's at the very least, the core thesis word of the smokers is waste. But at the same time, I know it's resources that didn't need to be used. Yeah. And they get so upset about the fuel boat being gone. And in fact, in this two minutes, we are going to get to it. Resources get discussed directly Mm -hmm. and how important they are. So why are they okay with such waste? This Hellfire gunboat, I would not be surprised if more than just Chuck ended up getting axed. I think everybody on the boat. (laughs) Let's leave them behind to their rather uncertain fate because we get a helicopter shot of the atoll and all the smokers around it. And as we tilt down, we see that the mariner on the trimaran is sailing away from everything and the battle is effectively 
over. I went back, and if you start counting somewhere around the Watchtower guy ringing the bell to this minute, it's essentially 15 minutes, almost to the dot. Okay. Now, we knew it was going to be about 15 minutes going into this battle, but now that we're at the end of it, it felt like it flew by. did mm-hmm. not feel like 15 minutes. So I think that's really a mark in the pro column for this movie and its direction and editing. Absolutely. And you can chalk that up to the action scene having a lot of little bits, stories, and progressions throughout it that kept it interesting. Very much so. It wasn't just vampires and werewolves in a subway station (laughs) firing bullets at each other. Not to call out one specific movie in particular. Very true. This battle had a plot. Mm -hmm. Once we get back into the atoll, the smokers are now in complete control, and their goal is to pillage. They got inside, they neutralized the residents, and so now they need to take everything that's nailed down, including people. There are some things about this scene that I love. I love the pillaging of resources. I love the collecting what you can and what's useful. The talk about logistics and the lists of things. I like that because it's an organization thing. Like, okay, let's take a place of chaos and bring it back to organization. That I love. What I really don't love are the first thing that happens when we get back into the atoll. The two smokers that have the woman. Yes. And she says, let me go. Let me go. Well, yeah, that's the rape part of the rape and pillage. Yep. That is what is happening. No question about it. They are essentially pirates after all. Yes, they are. That's the ugly side. They've already killed a lot of people. We find the Nord over by the trading barge and he is inspecting dead bodies trying to find if Enola was among the people that was killed. Yeah, because he saw Enola. On the trading barge specifically. Yes, but he probably only saw her once, mostly from behind. Never did he get to really talk to her. So he knows what she looks like, but not solidly Mm -hmm. what she looks like. So the example that we have here of this dead body that he inspects is somebody... A female with braided hair wearing the same thing that everybody else is wearing. So he inspects her back for the tattoo. It's not her. He is frustrated. He is very frustrated. And it's such a kick in the pants that the whole exercise was to find Enola to get the girl with the tattoo on her back. And Nord seems a bit desperate here as he's shouting that she's here somewhere Keep looking, which I don't think the smokers are necessarily prioritizing looking for Enola, especially when you've got smokers collecting water in buckets streaming out of the salinator. Yeah, most members of a military force or members of a militia are more interested in survival and profit rather than these big grand ideas that leadership often have. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's about finding dry land. Well, these guys don't care that much about dry land. They like water, they like food, they like women, and that is what they are here for. Mm -hmm. It is a bit frustrating for me to watch these smokers loot the atoll because 
the structure of the atoll itself is valuable. And it's a shame that they can't, I don't know. Assimilate it? Yeah. Get the atoll to the Ds and add to the Ds using parts of the atoll. Yes. Especially the scene right after we see the pillaging of the water tank Mm -hmm. is the pillaging of the tree. And they're just lopping limbs off. Yeah. It's still on fire. They're lopping limbs off, not even carefully, not even trying to get as much wood off the branch as possible. They're just interested in the fruit. They might as well just pick the fruit. Mm -hmm. Or they could put out the fire and at the very least, just drag the barge. Exactly. Take the whole barge. Look, you have a tree. So they're not interested in long-term survival. They're interested in right now. It's so slapdash and inefficient. And it's so frustrating and... That frustration continues when the resources start being read and they don't care about the stock of fish and plankton cakes, the trees, the grapevines. The only part of that that gets a reaction is that they don't have any refining capabilities. (laughs) But there's stocks of food here. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. We very quickly see that the deacon has survived the ordeal on the gas barge. His left eye has been sacrificed to the operation, and his entire left side of the face is covered in soot and maybe a little crispy, definitely more crispy than he would necessarily enjoy. And as he gets into the atoll, he's jostled by another smoker, and he's like, ah, watch it. I'm in pain here. And we're introduced to the ledger guy. And Tierney was so excited for this guy to come in. So let's meet this guy. The Ledger guy is played by Robert Joy. On IMDb, his top four include Land of the Dead in 2005, The Hills Have Eyes in 2006, Alien vs. Predator colon Requiem in 2007, and Superhero Movie in 2008. Waterworld is not in his top four. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> Robert Joy was born August 17, 1951, in Montreal, Quebec, and he grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland. He attended Corpus Christi College in Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship, as well as Memorial University of Newfoundland. Joy's acting career kicked off in 1973 with a bit part on a TV show called Purple Playhouse. His career on television spans over four decades, but his movie career began with his appearance in Louis Mal's Atlantic City in 1980, where he plays Dave Matthews, the ex-husband of Susan Sarandon's character. Currently, Joy has 137 acting credits to his name, with the latest one being John Crowley's The Goldfinch in 2019. As Tierney described him back in episode 24, he is a, quote, that guy, to the extent that he was one of the 16 actors interviewed in the 2012 documentary That Guy Who Was In That Thing, directed by Ian Roman, (laughs) and Michael Schwartz. Robert Joy married Mary Joy in 1979, and that's not at all a confusing sentence. (laughs) They had a daughter named Ruby and then were divorced at an unrecorded time. Robert and his daughter performed on stage together in the summer of 2011 in a production of William Shakespeare's The Tempest. Joy was formerly the partner of actor William Duff Griffin, who died from prostate cancer in 1994, and has been in a relationship with Broadway composer Henry Krieger since 1995. As I mentioned, he has 137 acting credits. A lot of them are on television. Oh, okay. 
he will come in for one or a handful of episodes with most things. Probably the longest running thing I can see just by cursory scanning, he was Sid Hammerback in CSI New York on 165 episodes. Oh, wow. That's a good run. Mm Mm-hmm. A very good run. Yeah. He's busy. Very much so. But like I said, he pops in just about everywhere, gets his face in there, and then he disappears. But as we see him here in Waterworld, he is holding a big old book, and he starts listing off the resources that they've been able to find so far here in the Atoll, which includes 660 Gs of Hydro, three-quarter grade or better, which I'm sure grades are how pure they are for drinking. They have 120 keys of assorted edibles, fish and plankton cakes, and 60 keys of lamp oil, 44 old-grow grapevines, 10 assorted fruit trees, zero reloads, no ammo storage on this particular atoll, and zero go juice with no refining capability, to which the deacon replies, primitive savages. This is the sort of thing that drives me bananas. We found a very similar ideology, I suppose, in Pocahontas, that this tribe of people (laughs) are sustaining themselves. They're doing fine. Mm -hmm. Arguably, the Atoll's not doing great, but they do have food stores and water stores and lamp oil and a way to sustain themselves. But because they don't have the same technology that this invading force does, then they're savages. These smokers are looking for very specific resources like ammunition, gasoline, and cigarettes. And this atoll just doesn't have those things. Frankly, we still don't know where cigarettes are necessarily coming from. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And it's doubtful that we'll ever find out exactly where they're coming from. Uh, Yeah, I don't think so. I think at the very least, the deacon, certainly as... The practical side of things, he needs to recoup his losses. Mm -hmm. This was an expensive venture, especially with the explosion. Losing a ship and any leftover fuel that they hadn't used. Yeah, this was expensive. So they need to recoup something from it. And he certainly doesn't value fruits and fish and plankton cakes. Those are the things that are going to sustain your fighting force. And mm, it's rough to see them dismissed offhandedly in such a way. (laughs) Yes, it is. The Atoll was doing really well in supporting a community. It was a limited-sized community. And it's not like they had an abundance of everything, but they had enough. And it was good. And now they're all gone. They were terrible people, but now they're all gone. Yep. And all the deacon can do is say, oh, this used to be fun, and asks how long it had been since they had a really good crusade. I love the ledger guy's response. (laughs) It's basically the response of someone lower speaking to someone higher, where they don't really have a response. They're just saying something so that they can respond. It's, it's not a real response. The word that's coming to my head is that he's commiserating. Yes, commiserating. That right? Yes, yeah. that is an excellent word for it. But that's not what the deacon is looking for. No. It wasn't, he, he wasn't just <laughs> complaining. Yeah. He really wants to know. Yeah. And when the deacon says, tell me how long, then 
the way that the ledger guy flips switches and he starts rifling through this giant book of his trying to find the bookmark that probably doesn't exist of exactly how long ago it was since they had a really good crusade. The way that we wrap up this minute, I think, is very curious. Yes. Very curious. So the deacon says, remember, there used to be eight holes on every horizon. Where the hell are they all going? Now, I know that the next line that we will talk about next week kind of changes the meaning of this question, but that's not till next week. Yeah. We are left with this line, where the hell are they all going? And this opens up a window of lore Mm -hmm. to be explored. Where are they all going? I love the idea of atolls on every horizon. It would be incredible to see the Mariner going from atoll to atoll to atoll, finding clues and talking to people and making some sort of long-term connection. Basically, what I'm talking about is the Mandalorian show on Disney+. Plus? <laughs> replace the planets with atolls and replace the Mandalorian with Kevin Costner. I know it's a hard sell because you'd essentially be replacing Baby Yoda with Enola. Oh, but still, but that's still, the situation we're talking about. It is. The main trouble with putting an atoll on every horizon is that this production has lousy luck. When it comes to atolls. Oh, if they had to create another atoll, oh, it would have been awful. It would have like tripled the price of the production. How many times do you think it would have sunk? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea that there used to be many, many atolls Mm -hmm. and that now there are not. We talked about the different types of concepts for the atoll, the Nautilus spiral, the horseshoe built off of the boat. It would have been so interesting if somehow this movie had expanded into a greater world setting where you could see, okay, these people came from this part of the world, and these are how their boats usually look, and this is how they adapted to the rising tides. I know that a lot of ships and boats are a bit homogenous nowadays in the modern era. But you have so many nautical cultures that have built their own style of boat that it'd be very cool to see those reflected in a water world setting. That would have been very cool. And I think society would have divided itself up in very similar ways to our world dividing itself up. Now, in the modern era where the world really is a lot smaller than it used to be. But in this water world, that has now reverted back to prehistoric times. The world is now much larger. Mm -hmm. Well, people gather where they are. So communities become insular. And that's how over time we evolved where this tribe over here has a lot of blonde people. And this tribe over here has a certain shape eye. That's how we developed these different traits from around the world. Well, that would have continued in this world. Mm -hmm. And those differences in style would have also continued. And that would have been really interesting to see. I was particularly interested by the question, where the hell are they all going? As if they know something and they are chasing something or running away from something. 
in theory, if you have so many people existing on atolls, what is driving them aside from day-to-day -day survival? When their bellies are full and their thirst is sated, what do they dream of? They probably dream of dry land. And if these atolls are moving around and suddenly there are fewer and fewer of them, maybe these atolls are finding dry land or these atolls are being attacked by some sort of deep sea creature. Or maybe these atolls are warring one against another and there is a mortal engines situation where there's one mega atoll that is going around absorbing smaller atolls and adding bits and pieces from the conquered parties to itself. I love that idea. That's what I would hope to see. One small atoll like this one, its resources are limited. Its capacity for population is limited. They're stagnant. They're dying because they are stagnant. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're dying because they don't have enough food and water. Because as we learn, they have food and water. They have ways to sustain themselves. I think they're dying because they're stagnant. Because they're fed and watered. They don't have anything next. So I love the idea of joining up with other atolls, becoming more of a population, and having the capacity for more. So I hope that that is what they are doing. And if you keep doing that and keep doing that, what you're going to end up with is essentially a continent. Mm -hmm. It's essentially a mass large enough that it can now be called something more than just atolls stacked together. Get some sort of long train of boats built up in such a way that you are able to have, okay, let's consolidate all of our dirt onto these centralized barges. Well, great. Now we have fields. Let's yeah. make sure we build up the walls. And so now it's a big sort of incomplete dome situation. Right. If every atoll that comes along has an organo barge, well, you consolidate those. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of a movie, Valerian. Oh, The City of a Thousand Planets. The City of a Thousand Planets. It reminds me of that movie. The opening sequence is of the International Space Station and an alien civilization finds it and attaches itself and joins up. And then that keeps happening and keeps happening until it gets so big as a gravitational force, they have to move it away from the Earth. Mm -hmm. And it just goes and starts drifting around the galaxy. Yeah, just drifting out in space all by itself because it's its own thing now. That's exactly what I hope for with the atollers. Because I don't think civilization as a whole is sustainable on this atoll model. Hmm. Say what you will about Luc Besson and say what you will about Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. But that opening 10 minutes. Oh, it was fantastic. I loved it so much. Fantastic. It was so good. Because you could so do good. that. Here in Waterworld. Yeah, you absolutely can. You have your handshaking montage and the expansion of the boat and everybody's got their little section that caters to their specific needs and experiences, but they're all working together. Where did all the atolls go? Yep. I mean, we're going to find out next week, but still, where? <laughs> I love the way that this cut off that actually allowed some discussion of that question. As opposed to when we talk next week, we have the answer and it's not any of these interesting things. Yeah. I want to go back to the Deacon being disappointed that they have zero go juice and no refining capabilities. The smokers, we are going to find out in later weeks, have in their possession 
an old world tanker of unrefined fuel. We discussed way, way back in a past episode that it would be incredibly hard to get oil out of the ground because even the offshore platforms would be flooded because they're attached to the ocean floor through the pipes and the water would just swallow them up. I have to wonder, does the Deacon really expect there to be refining capabilities? Do you think he's found other tankers of gasoline before? Yes, because the tanker in question, we'll dive into it when we get there, but it's the Exxon Valdez, Mm -hmm. a famous tanker, also a very old tanker. There are hundreds, if not thousands of tankers on the water full of unrefined fuel at any given moment. So that would continue to be true right up to and well past actually the moment when the oil fields are too flooded to function. There will be a moment when the oil fields have to shut down. Mm -hmm. They are flooded. They are not functional. The same for the ocean drilling. There will be a time when it has to stop with the flooding. But throughout the rising waters, there's still going to be fuel moving around the world. So when the time comes for the transition to being boat-dwelling people, there's going to be so many tankers out there. And if the Exxon Valdez is still afloat and still has fuel in it, there must be others. Why is this the last one? There should be more newer, therefore more structurally sound, larger tankers I know out it, there in the world. I know it's easy to balk at the Deacon and say, oh, he's so uptight. Oh, they didn't have refining capabilities. Well, why would they? There's a possibility of them having it because of this reasons you just mentioned. Thousands and thousands of tankers out there on the ocean carrying unrefined fuel. Right. Who's to say that there aren't tankers out there who travel from atoll to atoll selling their unrefined fuel? Mm -hmm. Like, hey, we have fuel to sell you. We don't have refining capabilities. But if you do, then you can buy this fuel off of us. We will take payment of cigarettes, apparently, and clean water and food and fruit trees and whatnot. And that is a very viable business model. Oh, yeah, because oil is a finite resource. Petrol, oil, natural oils, fat oils like you get from big fish and whatnot. Sure, that's a bit more renewable. And from the sound of it, when the ledger guy mentions lamp oil, Mm -hmm. it seems like they've gone back to using animal fats and oils in their lamps again. Yes. If you roll up in a big old ship on an atoll and you're like, hey, we've got unrefined crude. If you can change it into fuel, that can drastically alter the way your atoll runs. Yeah, that's going to be worth its weight in dirt. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And based on the way this conversation goes down about the go juice and refining capability, that there are atolls that this is the case, Mm -hmm. that they have a supply from somewhere. They have the ability to refine it. Therefore, logically speaking, really in this movie, in this world, there are tankers that go around and do this. This is yeah. not just a wouldn't it be nice scenario. This is a scenario where it's happened enough times that the deacon has an expectation. Yeah. As this conversation is happening between the ledger guy and the deacon, right in between them, <laughs> in the distance, is the commerce elder 
from here, it's kind of hard to tell it's the Commerce Elder, but we will get up close and personal with him next week. So come back for episode 27. We'll see the Nord deliver some bad news. The Atoll's Elder will be interrogated, and the Deacon will give a grand speech to his smokers. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 26. We'll see you next time.